You know that's the sound of another sale on your online Shopify store. But did you know Shopify powers selling in person too? That's right. Shopify is the sound of selling everywhere. Online, in store, on social media, and beyond. Shopify POS is your command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. With Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Connect with customers in-line and online. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug-and-play tools built for marketing campaigns from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. Get hardware that fits your business. Take payments by smartphone, transform your tablet into a point-of-sale system, or use Shopify's POS Go mobile device for a battle-tested solution. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash crimes, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash crimes to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash crimes. Good morning, and thanks for joining me for Rise in Crime, your morning caffeine hit all about crime. I'm Mama Jules, and let's begin today with a story out of Boston that has rocked the Canton community, specifically the law enforcement community. We've got to head back to the late night hours of January 28th and the early morning hours of the 29th of 2022, so about a year and a half ago. It's Boston in the winter, and the streets are packed with snow. And John O'Keefe, a 16-year veteran of the Boston Police Department, and his girlfriend, Karen Reed, are out drinking with friends. Karen is an educated and accomplished woman. She graduated from Bentley Graduate School of Business, and her undergrad degree was in finance. She was a presidential scholar while enrolled at Bentley, and she graduated in three years instead of four as part of their accelerated studies group. Karen has held a few different tech-related jobs, but most recently, she had worked for the finance department at Bentley University for the last 13 years. Karen, a 41-year-old, and John, a 46-year-old, had been dating for about two years, and neither has any biological children. But John had begun raising his niece and nephew after their parents passed. According to John's family, John was the man who would give you the shirt off his back if you needed it. And they said he welcomed the idea of creating a home for his niece and nephew after his sister and her husband died. So we've got John and Karen out with friends drinking on a cold winter night. And I'm going to warn you ahead of time, as we get into this story, the friends all cross over in each other's lives. One friend is married to a cop who is friends with both Karen and John and the other cops and their kids are involved and I'm going to do my best to keep it all straight for you. So when I repeat the connections between people, it's so we all don't get lost in this tangled web that left John dead on that snowy January night. All right, the two are bar hopping. First, they were with friends at C.F. McCarthy's Bar in Canton, and then they went across the street to the Waterfall Bar and Grill. 
bar footage shows the two are having a great time. They're hugging and laughing together. They stayed there for about an hour, and it's getting close to midnight. Both have been drinking, and Karen is driving. They've been invited to carry on the party at Brian Albert's home. Now, Brian is a Boston police sergeant who has teenage kids, and one of his kids is having a get-together at Brian's home. So it's party central. Kids are having a good time, adults are having a good time, and Karen and John have been invited to hang out with them. But Karen's having tummy issues. Her lawyer has confirmed that her health just isn't the best. She suffers from colitis and some other health issues, and she just wants to call it a night. But John says he wants to go. So they finally agree that she'll drop him off at Brian's home. It's here where different stories begin to be told. According to Karen, she dropped John off and left with the expectation he would be returning to his niece and nephew within about an hour or two. But when she can't get John to answer his phone for most of those early morning hours, she calls her friend Jennifer McCabe to help her out. Okay, Jennifer isn't like her best friend. It's not like calling the one you can trust the most. She is calling Jennifer because Jennifer is the sister to Nicole Albert, and Nicole is the spouse to Brian. And Brian in Nicole's house is the last place that Karen saw John when she dropped him off for the party. Jennifer was actually at that party, and this probably seems to Karen like a logical person to help figure out where John is and why he hasn't returned to his kids or why he isn't answering the phone. Now, according to police documents, Karen is frantic during this phone call with Jennifer. Jennifer says Karen is already assuming that John is dead, and maybe she's just thinking the worst has happened, or maybe she's actually expressing some sort of guilt. By now, it's after 5 a.m. when Karen and Jennifer head over to Brian and Nicole's house. It's there that they find John dead in the snow outside of the home. He has deep abrasions to his right forearm, two black eyes, a cut to his nose, and a two-inch laceration to the back of his head, as well as multiple skull fractures that are later identified in the autopsy. And I want you to remember how extensive his injuries are. Also discovered during the autopsy are signs of hypothermia. Jennifer is the one who calls 911 when they find John, and Karen tries to resuscitate John. Well, when paramedics arrive on scene, they claim that Karen, still frantic, is crying and saying repeatedly, I hit him, I hit him, I hit him. They conclude that Karen believes she backed over John as she was leaving to return home several hours prior when she had dropped him off for the party. Now, it's important to note that while this scene is unfolding outside of their home, Brian and Nicole, they don't come outside. I mean, you've got cop cars, paramedics, investigations happening, a frantic girlfriend, and by the way, don't forget a dead brother in blue. Brian is a police sergeant with John who is dead in front of his home and he doesn't come outside. Well, detectives begin doing what detectives do. They seize the black Lexus that Karen had been driving the night before. They found that Lexus at Karen's parents' home and they claim it had a shattered right rear taillight and several scratches on the rear bumper. Investigators also say that some glass was embedded in the paint of the nearly brand new Lexus. They say that glass matches a drinking glass that Brian was holding. So all I can come up with is is that 
Brian maybe took a glass from the bar and he had that glass and he had that glass when she dropped him off at the home. Now, investigators also say that pieces of the Lexus tail light were found in the snow outside of Brian and Nicole's home. Well, the police arrest Karen and they charge her with second degree manslaughter and leaving the scene of a crime. And everything I told you seems pretty damning, right? The puzzle pieces are coming together. But Karen's attorney and family say not so fast. Karen's legal team has developed a theory of a large-scale cover-up that runs deep in the Boston Police Department. So here's what they contend. The investigation was handled by state police officers, which totally makes sense. The entire scene is teeming with Boston PD, so you can't have them handling the investigation. But that state investigator has close ties to Brian Albert, the owner of the home. And the attorneys also have issues with the gathering of evidence. They say that the Canton police chief, who gathered the broken taillight shards at the scene of the death, well, they say he found those shards after multiple people had already searched the area. And the deputy chief for the Canton police says that ring doorbell footage is unavailable for that night. It's just missing. Her attorneys also have serious issues with the extent of John's injuries, specifically his right forearm. They say the wounds on the forearm were likely from the German shepherd that was in Brian and Nicole's home on the night of the party. Okay, you might be thinking, well, what if the dog came outside and caused those issues while he was outside? Well, it's Brian who is saying the dog was never outside in front of the house. And it's also Brian who is saying that John never entered the home. So the German shepherd and John should have never crossed paths, according to Brian. And in fact, Brian claims he had no idea John was outside at all until the scene unfolded that next morning. But the defense says that John had to have entered the home. They pulled data from his smartphone that reflected that John had walked flights of stairs in those early morning hours, and they feel that that shows he was not laying outside after being backed into by Karen. But the prosecution says that kind of data is often incorrect and that the smartphone offers no evidentiary value. All right, the dog. Well, Brian rehomed the dog shortly after John's death. And apparently, finding that dog is turning out to be more difficult than you would think. And I'll tell you this next bit of information with a small caveat. Brian and Nicole sold their home 10 months after the death. So you might be thinking that's a huge deal. And maybe it is, and maybe it isn't. But that information can't be used to prove anything in the actual trial. Now let's get back to Jennifer. Remember, she is Nicole's sister and Brian's sister-in-law. And she was at the party on the night John died. Because Jennifer and Karen spoke that morning before John was found in the snow, Jennifer's cell phone was entered into evidence. And the defense is claiming that on Jennifer's cell phone, they found evidence of searches that were conducted the morning of John's death. In those searches, someone on Jennifer's phone searched the phrase, how long to die in the cold. And they claim this search happened hours before Jennifer and Karen found John in the snow at 6 a.m. The defense attorneys feel that one search shows that John had been taken from the home and left in the snow to die before Karen even knew he was missing. Also, remember how I said Karen had called Jennifer looking for John, but that they weren't like best buddies. Well, Jennifer wasn't the only person Karen called. 
But Jennifer was the one person who, according to defense attorneys, inserted herself into the situation. The defense says that Jennifer was insistent that they drive to John's home first to search for him, even though Karen had already been there and knew he wasn't home. They say these delay actions show that Jennifer wanted John to lay in the snow for as long as possible. And Jennifer also made two calls after hanging up with the 911 operator after they found John. She called Nicole, the owner of the home, and who was partying with them the night before. So this is the same Nicole that didn't come out of the home as the scene unfolded, even though she's talked on the phone with Jennifer, who is right outside. And the evidence gets worse for Jennifer because the defense says that just one minute after making those two separate calls to Nicole, Jennifer Googled the phrase, how long does it take to digest food? Now, the defense believes that Jennifer is hoping John's undigested food doesn't somehow blow their cover of what actually happened to John inside Brian and Nicole's home. Now, on the other side, the state is claiming that the phone data can be interpreted differently and that the search for how long to die in the cold was carried out after finding John's lifeless body. Well, Karen hasn't spoken much since making Bond except to very select news outlets. But in one exchange with reporters as she left a courtroom in May, she was asked if she killed John O'Keefe. She quickly shot back, we know who did. And then her lawyer, Alan Jackson, said, no, no, she didn't do it. She is an innocent woman. She didn't do it. Karen then said she was the only one trying to save John's life on that January morning. So why am I bringing you this story now? Well, Judge Beverly Canone has finally set a trial date for March 12th of next year. She also heard multiple motions from both the defense and the state regarding the case. In court on Friday, defense attorneys said that the state is withholding several pieces of evidence, including samples taken from John's clothing and body, and also those pieces of broken taillight that were found in the snow. Karen's attorney, Elizabeth Little, says that date-marked evidence bags suggest that investigators conducted at least five undocumented searches at Brian and Nicole's home. She says that the defense had no documents or pictures showing where, when, or how those pieces of broken taillight were found. Of course, the assistant district attorney, Adam Lawley, pushed back against those claims, saying that any suggestion that they were withholding evidence is just patently ridiculous. He did say that some evidence is still being tested, and that might be why the defense has yet to receive those reports. So I just want to remind everyone that this evidence was collected 21 months ago. But Assistant DA Lawley assured the judge that he would look into the delay and try to provide the photographs and reports. Judge Canone made an immediate ruling that the testing should be expedited and that the state would be required to report on the progress by November 3rd. The two sides are also fighting over another motion that involves a hair that was found on the bumper of the Lexus. Karen's attorneys say that the DNA testing could not detect any human DNA on the hair. Now, the one attorney claimed to the judge that the state continues to make mistakes, and he can't see how they are mistakes at this point because the state just keeps making them. Well, Assistant DA Lolly said that the defense's narrative of no human DNA was a complete misrepresentation of what the DNA report is indicating. During the motion, prosecutors asked 
to test the hair again. But if they do so, it will use up all of the sample. Defense attorneys are asking that the hair be made available for their expert to test. And the judge has yet to rule on that motion. And finally, Karen is asking the court system to return her bail money. In exchange, she will turn in her passport and sign a waiver of rendition. Her attorneys say she is feeling an overwhelming financial crush due to the expenses of her defense. One reason the defense attorneys feel that her bail should be returned is because additional testimony has surfaced since she posted that bail. Specifically, a snowplow driver says that he cleared the road where Brian and Nicole's house is located, and he did not see a body in those early morning hours. Karen's attorneys say this testimony should clear her of the amount of bail money that was initially set. Her attorney, Alan Jackson, said that the plow driver's testimony should end the case. He said, to put it simply, no body at 2.30 a.m. means Karen Reed is innocent. Now, in the same hearing, Karen's attorney also reiterated their claims that the state investigator, Michael Proctor, should never have been assigned to the case since he has such close personal ties to Brian Albert. Assistant DA Lawley said the claims of ties between the two men were absurd, which actually drew laughter from gallery members in the courtroom, this according to Boston 10. See, Karen has apparently developed quite a fan club that believes the Boston PD is corrupt. Now, the judge is yet to rule on the bail money. And outside the courtroom, Karen's attorney told the crowd of supporters for Karen that they would not be quitting. He said Ms. Reed and her family will never, ever quit. I'll let you know as the motions are settled by Judge Canone. And of course, we will be closely following the trial next year as it happens. And let's head over to Virginia, where a murderous mother received her sentence Friday for the slayings of her two children. This is one of those cases that COVID grabbed a hold of, slowing the process so much that we are barely getting resolution now. We have to head back to August of 2018, where 37-year-old Veronica Youngblood is spiraling. Her emotions are out of control for several reasons, but paramount to her in those first days of August was the thought that her ex-husband, Ron Youngblood, was going to be moving to Missouri. Ron planned on taking one of Veronica's two daughters with him, and this just wasn't acceptable to Veronica. It is still a little murky what exactly Veronica was planning to do, but it seems revenge was her first priority. So she bought a gun, and then nine days later, she went about her nightly routine with her daughters, except this time she gave both 15-year-old Sharon and 5-year-old Brooklyn melatonin gummies. Once the girls were sleepy, she retrieved the gun and enacted her revenge, shooting Sharon in the chest and then the back. As Sharon is lying there dying, her mom leaves her room, and Sharon has no idea that Veronica went directly to Brooklyn's room, where she shot the five-year-old in the head, killing her instantly. Then, to complete her revenge, Veronica grabbed her cell phone and called her ex-husband, Ron, to tell him what she had done. In that call, she told Ron that she had killed Brooklyn and Sharon and that she now intended to kill herself. She finished the call by saying, I hate you. As Veronica is preoccupied with her revenge, she leaves the apartment shared by the mother and her two daughters. Veronica drove to the home of a man that she had been on only a few dates with, and she told him that she had just killed her children. 
Well, the man did not hesitate. He called 911, and Loudoun County Sheriff's deputies responded. They found Veronica sitting on the man's porch, still in possession of the 9mm she had purchased nine days earlier. Back at the apartment, Sharon has not died from the two gunshots, and she struggles to get to her cell phone. Eventually, she called 911, where she told the dispatcher what had happened and that her mother had shot her. As the 911 operator is just trying to gather information, Sharon repeats over and over again on the call, I don't want to die. Please help me. The dispatcher repeatedly comforts Sharon by telling her that help is coming. During the 911 phone call, Sharon is the ever-courageous older sister, telling the operator that first responders need to protect her younger sister, Brooklyn. Okay, remember, Sharon has no idea that Brooklyn is already dead at the hands of her mother. The dispatcher stays on the line with Sharon, imploring her to keep breathing and to stay with her. In the call, you can hear firefighters breaking down the door to the apartment. You then hear law enforcement announcing themselves before they discover the horrific scene. Now, paramedics, they immediately rushed Sharon to the hospital, but she died five days later from the gunshot wounds. Veronica was charged with two counts of first-degree murder, and then we waited until March of this year when she faced a jury in her murder trial. Almost as soon as prosecutors began playing the incredibly disturbing 911 phone call in the courtroom back in March, Veronica screamed, I can't, and then she tried to run from the defense table. Judge Randy Bellows called for recess and sent the jurors out of the room. When they returned, they were told that Veronica was excused from the courtroom for the playing of the 911 call. Back in March, defense attorneys contended that during the murders, Veronica was insane and that she could not be held to the standard of first-degree murder. Her public defender also highlighted that Veronica had endured a life of abuse, including sexual abuse from family members. Her attorney said she had been abandoned by both parents at the age of 17. That's when she became a sex worker in order to survive. Her attorney said the only time of stability for Veronica was during the beginning years of her marriage to Ron. But once that marriage soured, Veronica began sliding into a deepening depression. It was also claimed by her public defender that after being arrested and before the start of the trial, Veronica had tried multiple times to take her own life and that she had begged for the death penalty. Prosecutors conversely contend that Veronica was sane during the murders and that she was guilty of the crime she was being charged with. Fairfax County Assistant Commonwealth's attorney Kelsey Gill said during closing arguments of the trial that Veronica's behavior went well beyond depression, well beyond PTSD, and well beyond being suicidal. Gill asserted that Veronica was spiteful, selfish, vengeful, and calculated. It took the jury just one day following the two-week trial to find Veronica guilty of two counts of first-degree murder. On Friday, Judge Bellows sentenced Veronica to 78 years in prison per the jury's suggestion. Veronica's attorney asked for the sentence to run concurrently, which would have basically reduced the time served by half, but Judge Bellows nixed that request. He told the courtroom that mothers and fathers have many responsibilities, but none is more grave than keeping their children safe. Tragically, their mother became the instrument of their death. All right, Ron Youngblood, he was in the courtroom on Friday, but according to Oxygen.com, he said he chose a seat that purposefully obstructed his view of Veronica. 
He said it was too painful to look at her while she talked about her daughters for more than a half hour, pleading with the judge for leniency. Ron said he knew his ex-wife had animosity toward him, but he never once imagined that she would do anything like she did to their girls. Let's finish today by remembering Sharon and Brooklyn. Sharon was a cheerleader for Oakton High School. She was a competitive figure skater who loved music. According to her obituary, she had a special talent for reaching out to those who were struggling. And I'll just add my own thoughts here. Often when a child becomes the caregiver instead of her mother fulfilling that role, the child develops the ability to see the pain that others are feeling. And sweet little Brooklyn was described by Sharon's figure skating coach as a super cute kid who would tag along to Sharon's lessons. Now, I found it ironic that as I was researching this update on National Daughters Day on Monday, I just, here's this mother who killed her two kids. So if you have kids, give them a hug today. And if you don't have kids, show support for other people's kids because they're just kids. And to my two beautiful daughters, Peyton and Marley, thank you for being my world. I love you. Well, that's your Thursday episode of Rise and Crime. Please just keep sending me your case suggestions. Our story from today out of Boston, well, that came from a Rise and Crime listener. And a big thank you for your five-star reviews. Remember, you can follow us on Instagram and TikTok. And also, I would love if you would subscribe to the YouTube channel. You can join me again on Monday for more morning crime news. I'm Mama Jules. And keep safe out there. Save big money when you start your next project today at Menards. Check out our great selection of garage and utility lighting options. In stock, ready to take home today. We carry everything to help you illuminate whatever project you're working on. Shop garage and utility lighting products in store at your nearest Menards. You can also view all of our entire selection of lighting options today on Menards.com. Save big money at Menards.